Well, over the last week, uh, if you're here, or just to kind of recap what we've been saying, we've been considering this issue of a troubled conscience. Uh, the thing which keeps uh, many people up at night, uh, the feelings of guilt, shame, and regret. Uh, something that each one of us has deep down. And we explored that the idea of the conscience and drawing near to God, uh, they are two sides of the same coin. You see, having a troubled con conscience is antithetical to drawing near to God. Think about it. If you bring God into the picture, um, that compounds the issue of your guilty conscience. Uh, you have a perfect God, a perfect standard, the one who is holy, and all of this, it increases your guilt. It exposes your wrongdoings. It shows where your flaws are. And so if you have a troubled conscience, you will shrink back. You will move away from God. But if you have a cleansed conscience, you will draw near. Well, how do we deal then with a troubled conscience? Uh, firstly, I think how people react. Uh, you can ignore or rebel. Again, last week, we thought about the slogan that atheists have put on the bus. There probably is no God anyway. So stop worrying and enjoy life now. Alternatively, what do we do? We compensate, we justify for our actions. When I was back in Singapore a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was very surprised when I met one of my friends uh, who told me that he no longer eats meat, but he has gone vegan. And I asked him why. And told me that he finds it um, really good that he is able to contribute to making the world a better place. Again, there's nothing wrong with going vegan itself, but I thought it was really interesting, um, his rationale for doing so. It was a way to help him to feel good about himself. Perhaps that was his strategy to compensate for his addiction to alcohol. So what do we do? We ignore, we rebel, we compensate, we justify, or thirdly, we admit and we draw near. We find a real solution to deal with our troubled conscience. And so over the next few weeks, um, this will be the topic of our discussion to explore how do we deal with the thing that's inside of us um, that keeps us up at night. And can I say that if you are a Christian, can I commend to you to keep coming back to ch chapters 8 to 10 of the book of Hebrews? Uh, because in the future, I will assure you there'll be times where you feel weighed down by your sin and your guilt. And these are the chapters that you want to keep coming back to find comfort when that happens. Last week, uh, started for 10, uh, we saw that the new covenant is what helps our conscience. Uh, we said that the covenant, the new covenant is like a marriage covenant. It is the, the context of the relationship between God and his people. But then again, you might ask, unlike a wedding ring or a marriage certificate, and what proof is there that the covenant is secure? How can we be sure that we are really in the covenant? And so in our passage today, our author, he starts by sharing what doesn't help, or what doesn't help the conscience. And he indicates in verse 1 to 10, that it's the old covenant, or the whole old system, that shows that the way to God is not open. Or the way to God is not open. Uh, when uh, Becca was, was reading, you would recall um, there was a description of the holy place and the most holy place 
And if you're here in our Levitica series back in January, you might remember some of the themes being spoken about. And there are a few details in the passage. And the key um, outbox of the details is really right there in verse 8. Now look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. At the point that all these details make is that the way to God is, well, is not really open. I look at the details in verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory of shed. Sorry, cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. You see, all these details in the holy place and the most holy place, it all goes to show that the way is not open. Uh, the manna, Aaron's staff, and the stone tablets. If you think about what they were resembling in the Old Testament, they all remind us of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. But notice also the, the cherubim. And there are two cherubims covering the mercy seat. Like you might recall, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, they are cast out of the garden, and there are two angels with flaming swords guarding the way to the tree of life. And the cherubim is a reminder that the way to God is not open. But also notice the difficulty for the high priest to access the most holy place. Look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Do you notice only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, can the high priest go into the most holy place? You might see it a bit strange, like why doesn't he take blood? And again, we saw back in January that blood is, uh, signifies life. It is like a purifying agent. It's like a detergent to, to cleanse away uncleanliness and death. And so God, he provided provision for animal blood instead of blood of the people to wash away the sins and the uncleanliness of the people. And so animal blood allowed access, but only once a year. And so the author, he reflects on the whole Old Testament system. And the big thrust of it is to say that it is with real difficulty can one approach God. And that doesn't help the conscience. I want you to imagine me. Uh, imagine if you're, say, living in Israel, you're back under the old, um, old covenant system, and you've just committed a sin, and you feel really terrible, and your conscience is weighing you down. But the problem is the Day of Atonement just happened last week. But when is the next time can the priest step into the most holy place? It's 358 days later. And for all those number of days, uh, your conscience is weighing you down. I see the lack of access into the holy place. It doesn't help a troubled conscience. I look at verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
You see, the, the old system, it indicates that the way is, is not open. Well, it's worth kind of taking a step back to think about how this makes sense in our own contemporary world. Um, and I want us to think about church buildings. Um, I wonder whether you've thought about the, that the fact that our theology affects architecture. So your understanding of God and your theology affects how you build a building. And so there are many churches around the world designed to mimic the old system. Uh, you go in, it's beautifully decorated, gold-laden walls with pillars and much uh, intricate decorations. You have at the right of the back the pews for the common people. Uh, you go closer, you have the choir, you have the gate, you have the altar and a dome right at the end of the church. And there are all these rituals done by the priests. And all that does is to show that there's distance between God and the people. And that is a fatal flaw. It is creating distance, separation, a lack of access to God. And so it doesn't ease the conscience. And so the author of Hebrews, he is criticizing or critiquing the old system. And so any earthly system that mimics the old covenant is antithetical to helping people to draw near to God. Um, I wonder where something to chew on. Um, many church buildings around the world, all designed to perpetuate this idea of distance, lack of access, and that certainly doesn't help to ease the conscience. Well, if that doesn't help, uh, you might ask, what does? And the answer and the big takeaway for today's talk is this. It is the blood of Jesus that purifies the conscience. The blood of Jesus that purifies the conscience. And the two outboxes of, those, um, of that point. Uh, firstly, it's Christ that opens the way by his blood. Go to chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Uh, do you notice the contrast? Verse 11 and verse 1 to 10. Um, the high priest went into the holy places and the most holy place made with hands. A Christ, he enters the greater tent, not made with hands. That is heaven. The earthly high priest, he entered once a year. Uh, verse 12, Christ, he entered once for all. And thirdly, the high priest, he entered with blood of goats and calves. But Christ, he entered with his own blood. Well, you might ask, as Christ, he goes into heaven, he represents sinners uh, into the very presence of God. Um, how can that happen? Um, look at verse 13. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of Hepha, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, animal blood, to a limited extent, was able to wash the external. That is, the blood of Christ that goes to the full extent to wash our internal, our conscience, our hearts. You notice as well, the contrast is not just between a blood of man 
and the blood of animals. The author is emphatic. It is the blood of Christ, the King, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's his blood that can purify our conscience and bring us into God's presence. Uh, here is a pretty lousy parallel. Um, imagine a really lousy bar of soap, the one that you know you find in the public toilet, uh, trying to wash away a red a wine stain on your white t-shirt. Um, or compare that to uh, vanish, power, goal, oxy action uh, to wash it away. Um, but you see, it's, it's more than that. It's not just a cleaning of the same stain. It's a total a different stain. One is external, one is internal. It's a much better purification. And so today, if you are struggling with a troubled conscience, if you are tempted to stay away from God, if you feel the sin that prevents you from drawing near, well, there is a purifying agent available to cleanse your conscience. It is not the blood of animals, a blood that seeps from an uncooked chicken. Uh, you look at that come out, it's very unsatisfying. That's not going to cleanse your conscience. But it's the blood that gushes out from the crucified Christ as the sword pierces his side. Verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One of this is also helpful, you might sometimes think that it'd be quite nice if Jesus were on earth. And you try to speak to your friends about Jesus and you say, hey, there he is, you know, he's there in the flesh to prove himself. But our water, he's emphatic that no, it is good that Jesus is not enough. It is good that his offering has been accepted and he's up there once for all. And that means that we do not have to worry about being able to draw near to God. Uh, he has ascended. He is your confidence that you have full access to God. So Christ, he, he opens the way into God's right hand by his blood. Uh, but secondly as well, not just does his blood give you access? It also inaugurates the new covenant. I look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Uh, you notice in the next few verses as well, the the language of blood and death gets repeated all the time. Now, verse 15, a death has occurred. Verse 16, the death of the one. Verse 17, the will takes only effect at death. But then the mention of blood again in verse 18. The covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Um, verse 19, blood. Verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And really the, the big point that the author wants us to see is that blood is necessary for inaugurating the covenant, verse 18, but not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. You may wonder why, now, why is blood needed for a covenant to be established? And again, we said, remember, covenants are similar to marriage covenants between God and man or God and his people, but it's also different uh, in that there's an asymmetry in the relationship 
uh, God and man, uh, we are not on equal terms. God is holy, a man is sinful, and man deserves death. And so to start a relationship with God, blood needs to be spilled in order to pay for sin. Now, maybe the closest parallel is that if you maybe want to, if you're going to marry your partner, but that partner has multiple relationships with other people, you want him or her to sort out his mess before you get engaged to her. You see, the mess needs to be sorted out before the relationship or the covenant can be made. And in the same way, blood needs to be spilled to inaugurate a covenant. So the mess needs to be sorted out. Now look at verse 18 again. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. In verse 20, Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. I wonder whether those words sound a bit familiar. Um, the Lord Jesus, on the night, night that he was betrayed, uh, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body that is poured out for you, that is laid out for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, when Christ partook of the Lord, the Lord, the last supper with disciples on the night when he was betrayed, he inaugurates the new covenant with his blood. And the real advantage of that is that his blood, it becomes an objective symbol of um, the reality of the relationship that we have with God. Let me say that again. The blood becomes an objective reality of the relationship we have with God. Imagine with me, if you are meeting an important client for, for lunch and you are on your way to, to work um, and you experience a serious wardrobe malfunction. You have a bird poo on your nice white t-shirt and there's a problem. Firstly, there's an external stain. Your shirt is dirty but you have an internal issue. You're embarrassed what has happened to you. And what do you do? You go to the, to the nearest child's turret and you buy a new shirt. Only then can you meet your client. And you are clean and you're no longer embarrassed. And so the objective, the blood of the new covenant, that is what happens. The external is doing away with your sin, um, doing away with your sin on the external. But internally, it subjective, subjectively cleanses my conscience, my embarrassment. And so the blood of Christ inaugurates the new covenant. And that is the thing that deals with our conscience. And so to summarize what we've been thinking about, how do you deal with a troubled conscience, feelings of shame or guilt or regret in your battle against sin? And you feel... Um, the temptation to draw back, to shrink back and not draw near to God. Now you remember the blood of Jesus, the one who opens the way to God, who gives you free access to him. And also you remember the fact that he inaugurates this new covenant, this an objective symbol for you to ease your heart. And so when you hear the voice in your heart say, uh, you did that, I mean, how can you pray? 
created what? How can you serve God? You are unclean, you are guilty, you are sinful, you call yourself a Christian, you are a hypocrite. But when you hear this voice, what do you do? Uh, you, uh, we don't need to ignore or to rebel and say, yes, let's give up following Jesus. Uh, we don't need to compensate or to justify and say, well, what I did wasn't so bad. Uh, you can answer the voice and say, yes, I, I did that. I'm a mess. Uh, it's true. But it's the blood of Jesus that has washed me clean and has purified my conscience. Martin Luther, the German reformer, has this line. He says, so when the devil throws sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And so this is a big encouragement for this lunchtime is as you have faith in Jesus, his blood has purified your sins and cleansed your conscience. And so you can have confidence to draw near to God. But this is a hope worth sharing. If you think about this, Christians should, Christians should be distinct. We don't have to ignore or we don't have to justify. We have the freedom, the freedom to admit that we have messed up and accept the forgiveness that's on offer. And that is the only solution to a troubled conscience in this world. Well, this week, it's all about the blood. Uh, next week, uh, we, have, we will find out about more reasons why his blood, specifically his blood, can achieve so much. But for a time, a verse is close. Verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our Father, we praise you for your son. We thank you that he, like a lamb facing the slaughter, was silent, and he was willing to bear our transgressions so that we who are guilty and sinners may go free. We thank you for him and what he achieves for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.